Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about everyone. Welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I am your host, Lori LeBay, and I am thrilled that you're joining us today. If you liked our opening music, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band, and you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you who are new to our show, we're about sound information, not just sound bites. We want to give you real life experiences and everyone is welcomed on the show. So please know that maybe you could be our next guest. Just reach out to me. I would love to talk to you. Now, before I introduce our guest today, I always like to give a shout out to a couple of organizations. Um, one I want to mention is Artist Senior Living of Wilmot, and they are doing a educational webinar that actually is going to be featuring me and it's called caregiver survival camp it will be tuesday march 23rd from 5 30 to 6 30 p.m and that is central time and anyone is welcome you can call to register at 224-408-3152 i also want to give a shout out to memory cafes uh, if you haven't gone to the Memory Cafe directory, you need to. This is a list of many memory cafes, not only in the U.S., but actually in five different countries. Memory cafes are for people with dementia and their care partner to gather. It's just a wonderful, wonderful uh, group. And they have listed all the virtual ones on Cafe Connect section of the website. So again, just go to Memory Cafe directory. Also want to give a shout out to Dementia Map, the global resource directory. We are always looking for new people who have product services and tools, support groups that should be listed. In fact, you can meet with me for a tour. Uh, just go to DementiaMap.com and in the upper right-hand corner, there's take a tour. You can sign up for that. I would be more than glad to um, shoot you around the site. It is great for both families and professionals and, of course, those living with dementia. And then I want to give a shout out to Coral Health. That's C-O-R-O -O Health. They are still allowing people to download two free apps, Music First and Coral Faith. So please check them out. We are going to hear from the Foot Bar Walker and then we're going to be right back, and I'm going to introduce you to our guest today. Introducing the life-changing Footbar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Footbar Walker revolutionized my care of George. It absolutely benefits the patient and the caregiver both, and that's the beauty of it. 
It's so easy to use. It folds up just like a dream. I got it in and out of the car without any effort at all. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Foot Bar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Foot Bar Walker. Kyrie Barrett knows taking care of others is a noble, noble task. And caring for yourself is a must. And many of us don't know how to do that second part very well. She does presentations, videos. She's written a beautiful, well, actually a couple of great books. And she helps family caregivers feel sane, which stands for supported, appreciated, not guilty, and energized when it comes to caring for others. I know we're going to have a brilliant conversation with Kari, as we always do. Kari, I am so excited to have you with us today. I just think you are such a joy. Um, Your energy level is always off the chart and you are filled with fabulous information. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today. My pleasure. I always ask everybody before I kind of start on the line of questionings, if they've been personally touched by dementia in their own family or circle of friends, and it doesn't make any difference what your answer is, it's just nice for people to know. Yeah, um, a couple of things. Most recently, I mean, my grandpa, when I took care of him, he had uh, a dementia component in his disease. And my mother with her Huntington's years ago also had, and my sister has had a little dementia with that Huntington's disease. But I'd say the biggest um, touch point for me was my best friend. My best friend who had young onset Alzheimer's. And, you know, with her, we'd planned to grow together and be those best friends throughout the years. And I watched her go from this vibrant, um, smart, gifted, beautiful woman to a shrivel of something in six years. That was really hard to be with her in that journey, but also I wouldn't have it any other way, right? Yep. Um, and I was not her main caregiver. Her husband was, and um, she died in her home. He was able to keep her in her home, in the home, um, surprisingly. I mean, he was quite amazing, but he gave up a lot too. Yeah. That was, that was how I was most, I'd say most touched. Well, with- and, and don't you find it interesting, even though, you know, in your line of work, you have all these tools, but it just hits you different when it's personal. Oh my gosh. And you know what? There are a couple of times I remember being with her and a lot of what I teach is how to interact Mm -hmm. with people, right? How to have visits, how to communicate in different ways. And I'm sitting there and she's pacing back and forth and holding a piece of laundry and rubbing it and going back and forth between the laundry basket and the kitchen. And I'm sitting there going, come on, Kari, come on. (laughs) This is your field. (laughs) Come on. But you're so right when it is that person that's so close to our heart. It's difficult um, to do that. But I have to say what I did, and I picked up a trick of my own, is I just took a deep breath in 
took a pause and thought of one thing I could do with her that would shift her from the pacing she was doing. And generally, generally with her, it was to put on a piece of music and we danced. Oh. And that shifted her. And I, so I was able to do that, but it, um, it's much easier for me to suggest to other people that I'm not involved with. Yep. You're right. Yeah. Well, because everything changes in your routine and your relationship and, and how it once was. And, and I think it's important for people to know that, that we all struggled with that too. You know, that this is, it's not a normal shift. Mm -hmm. And when you care, you care. And that's, that's all there is. Now, today we're going to be talking about shame. And yeah. I think a lot of times people don't think, well, what do you mean shame? Uh, and so I can't wait to get into this conversation. But I want you to tell the audience how long you've been actually out there supporting caregivers, care partners, carers, care companions, whatever you want to call them right. um, in, in this field. Well, you know what, since I just redid my website recently, I had to, I had to figure that out. So I put a timeline on there so I could help myself remember because it's been a long time and it's been about since 1996. And I say that because I remember I finished my master's degree in 96. And while I was doing my master's degree, I did some extra studies. They didn't really have gerontology at the time I was doing my work. So I did a master's in continuing in adult education and I focused on aging. So I did a couple of different things. I went to um, senior living, independent living. Again, assisted living was just coming on board at that time. And I looked at what activities were being offered to older adults. And I thought, oh man, we gotta be doing more than bingo. And at that time we weren't doing so much more than bingo. And I was worked with a professor and she was experimenting at the time in doing mental fitness activities with older adults of various cognitive levels. So that was one thing. The other thing I did during my master's was I did a, I helped a professor do a research project on satisfying and dissatisfying experiences with being a caregiver for someone with Alzheimer's disease. And man, did I learn a lot from that. So those two things got me interested in my next phase, which was to go into senior housing and start off, I started off in activities. And this was when assisted living was new and it was gonna be this really easy thing and home-like atmosphere. And the company I was with eventually got out of senior living because it wasn't as easy and they couldn't let go of the medical piece of it. And they were frustrated with that. Long story short, I went from activities to running the dementia care to running the assisted living. And then I moved back to Minnesota and I worked for a housing company here or in Minnesota. So that all that was great. And I'm so thankful I had that experience, you know, that kind of boots on the ground experience working with both the residents, but also their families, because that led me to when I wrote The Unexpected Caregiver and my first book, Mental Fitness Instructor's Guide, because that's targeted to helping family members who are all of a sudden tasked with, oh my goodness, we have either mom is getting older and physically needs help or 
um, there's some cognitive impairment starting and we don't know what it is, or uh, we're moving mom in with us and that's changing our life. So it became, that became an opportunity for me to share some of my expertise and talk and support family caregivers specifically. Um, and I've loved that. And I, I've done that through a radio show and through writing and through seminars and presentations and keynotes. And now in this COVID time, I've been creating videos, which has been really quite a hoot, <laughs> if I do say so. Well, you know, I think it's interesting, you know, your, your journey, because again, you have covered all the gamuts, which, yeah. which is really important because that allows you to really see big picture and why things aren't working between the person with dementia, their families, staff, you know, the whole nine yards. And so many people don't understand the importance of the connection because we all feed off one another. We all react off one another. And so we've got to get on the same page. The other yeah. thing I liked is when you talked about mental fitness, yeah. I think that is such a huge, massive missing piece that we have not addressed well is that whole emotional side. You yeah. know, everything is hush hush and, you know, we don't air our dirty laundry. We keep it to ourselves. I'm told I'm supposed to be able to handle this. Right. And we have all of these patterns of behavior that really need to be broke as society yeah. in order to become healthy, I think. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I also talk about mental fitness as in brain fitness. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, interestingly enough, I think that's one of the shame pieces that happens with diseases like Alzheimer's or any disease that causes dementia, because it's a brain thing. And we, we tend to then blame ourselves because we didn't challenge our brains enough, or we didn't do enough. We um, got lazy or we could have done more or, or whatever. And, and anytime we get in that headspace, this, this place <laughs> and something goes wrong with us. Oh man, it can lead to all sorts of trouble, but I'm going to back up because I just thought of something, Lori. I had a chat with someone who has, I don't know what disease they have, but they have dementia. They have dementia from some disease. And this person, she said to me, brain fitness doesn't work. Forget it. Don't even, don't give me a crossword puzzle to do. It's going to make me crazy. And I said to her, I totally agree. Totally agree. However, I also think if you can engage that person in a brain fitness activity with them, and there is no right or wrong answer, but it's, for example, let's look at this piece of art and what colors do you see and uh, what lines do you see and what do you think the artist was doing when they created this? There's no right answer because whatever the person says is right. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. And I would take that even one step further is one of the things that people don't view as brain fitness, but I, I think really is, is doing artwork. If it's, if it's dancing, if it's painting, if it's knitting, if it's whatever, it's, yes. it's engaging. And I think we need to make that flip and include that, that it's just not crossword puzzles right. and, and things that look like a test. 
Totally. That is totally right. And then when you get into, uh, like if you have grandkids that don't know how to relate to their grandpa with Alzheimer's disease, well, if you put a puzzle in between them, or if you, like I did with my grandma Gladys, put music on and all of a sudden it shifted. And we were talking about when she and my grandpa would take the train from Minneapolis to Chicago and dance all night. That's working the brain, that's brainstorming, that's being creative, that's reminiscing, that's all those things that engages the brain. Yep, yep. And it engages the relationships at the same exactly. time. Exactly. Yep. Yes. Yeah, yep. I, re I remember when my mom um, was early in the disease and my daughter was really young, maybe two, three years old, and my mom wanted to babysit her and Tom and I were like, ooh. We were a little nervous, but we were like, this is so important to her. You know, she's not going to go drive. She's not going to cook. I'll bring food over and, and coming home and um, going to just walk in the door. And there they are both coloring at the kitchen table. And they both held up their artwork. I mean, just equally excited. And I just thought, what a beautiful moment. The bonding that was taking place, the comfort that they felt, it the, the pride, it was, I, I, it, it still makes me teary-eyed just thinking oh, about yeah. it, you know, just as simple. Yeah. Just simple. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't have to be complex. Yeah, exactly. Oh my goodness. That's why I like talking to you. We're just on the same page. <laughs> so many things. I, I want to talk about shame because uh, shame, we've talked about it over the years, how, how, it is um, a characteristic in some ways of a diagnosis, not only for the person that is diagnosed, but for family and friends as well. There, there seems to be this shroud of, of shame. And what are your thoughts on that? Why, why is that stigma so wrong? I'm pretty sure it goes back to the brain and anything having to do with cognitive issues, anything having to do with our head. And I remember when I first admitted publicly that I deal with depression. And this was way early in my speaking career. And the advice I got from someone um, who was a coach in a way for me, he said very clearly, don't talk about depression because you'll, you know, it's a downer. You'll label yourself. People won't want to work with you because you know, what if she gets depressed? <laughs> so just similar to that, we don't, we don't understand depression. We don't understand Alzheimer's because, and I'm, I'm going to say Alzheimer's, but anything that causes dementia, right? Yep. So if someone's diagnosed with Alzheimer's, it's not like they're boom, can't think anymore, can't function anymore, right? So it's the same. It, it's just, it's that, that, you're going crazy. You're going insane. <laughs> um, you're out of your head, so to speak. And that's a stigma because we want to be in control. And sometimes when I have bouts of depression, I'm not in control. But just like or similar to someone who has been diagnosed with a disease that causes dementia, if, if we admit to it, if we get that diagnosis, then we can get the help and the tools, right? Yep. I think of your memory cafes. I think of the support groups that so many people need instead of hiding, but to say, 
you know, either the person with the disease or the family members or caregivers, this is going on. See this elephant? It's parked in the middle of our living room. And I see it and I want you to see it. And I want you to help us figure out how to eat the elephant, which is usually one bite at a time, right? Yep. So it's, it's too bad that we still struggle with and label anything doing having to do with the brain as shh don't talk about it yep well and we wonder why we have problems as a society when we're all supposed to be part of the stepford wives community everything's perfect all the time and social media has just amplified that and there's two sides on social media it's either amplified that everything is great or there's the drama kings and queens out there as well, that everything's a disaster. And there is a middle ground and the yeah. pendulum does swing and we all feel all of it. And I like you for speaking, I was told, you know, don't get emotional on stage because sometimes I'll tell stories and, and I'll get teary eyed and I never know when it's going to hit me. But oh. I mean, I, I take people up and I take people down. I, I, I think it is healthy to feel those emotions and not be embarrassed by them. And if I can be that vulnerable like you, we can help other people not feel alone and oh. go, wow, they're up on stage doing this and right. they're, they're not embarrassed by it. Um, they're learning to cope with it. And, you know, they've got some tips on this. This is a good thing. And talking yeah. about that, I think is so powerful because again, it takes away that loneliness it gives hope and it, it brings normality and it gets people to understand that everything can be okay, but you have to, you have to be authentic with what it is your life is and what you want it to be. You know, the other piece of stigma too, and this had, this is something that we, we still are, have a stigma against aging, mm -hmm. right? Um, aging is bad. Aging is a failure. Um, there are even sites that say aging isn't normal. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Oh, oh my yeah, God. that's, yeah, that's a good one. So, uh, and, and, how, you know, we're starting to just hint at talking about showing older people, older women, older men, um, in pictures and, and actors are starting to talk about this as a positive thing that yes, we're all aging and it's okay. Here are the benefits, here are the downsides, which there are benefits and downsides to being 20 as well. But Alzheimer's is still linked with age. So it almost gets a double whammy of stigma in that mm -hmm. regards, even though we're seeing much more uh, young onset Alzheimer's um, and only because I think we're finally, doctors are finally starting to, to recognize that as something, but I know, I know you've interviewed many people who, young, young onset people who have had that fight to get a diagnosis. Oh yeah. Some, I mean, Michael Ellenberg was 10 right. years, 10, 10 years. years. He yeah. started having symptoms at 39 and, yeah. you know, um, many people it's common two to three years. And I think for a long time, it was pushed off as midlife crisis, you know, and people were on the verge of divorce. 
thinking, you know, someone's acting out or behaviors have changed or whatever it might be. And, you know, it was the disease. And so I'm so glad that, that we are getting better educated. I think our medical system still has a long, long long way to go in terms of um, diagnosis and care and uh, referring people to support. Uh, But, you know, all of all of that is in motion and it's definitely improved in the communities with right. dementia-friendly communities, memory cafes yes. and things like that in the last yes. five years. Another stigma can be, is, and this can go two-sided and I'm sure you've seen this too. The person with dementia is in um, denial or doesn't want anyone to know. Other times they're ready to come out and tell people and then family and friends are like, oh no that's going to change our life. Don't be doing that. And there can be reasons for that from they don't want to lose their job, which right. is, you know, you're looking at income and livelihood, all of that to how are people going to look at us? How are they going to treat us? Are we going to lose their friends? Because in some, it's almost the, it's, it almost impacts some people like a divorce does. You pick sides of, you know, who, who's going to be your friend now in this new world with this change. What, what have you seen with that or experienced? Well, one thing that, that I saw at the end of my best friend's life, I know her husband too. And he, I went to high school with him too. So he's been a friend of mine. But I remember after she died and my trips to Minnesota, I would stay with them primarily so I could be involved with her care and because I love her, loved her. Mm-hmm. But he said to me, you're still going to come and see me, aren't you? You know, it's that, 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 that really hard realization that now that person with Alzheimer's or that is gone, but are you going to leave me too? Yep. That I've experienced that, but I've, I've, I've seen it both ways. I've been with someone where the per, no, actually both situations, my best friend did not want anyone to know. She didn't want anyone to know. And so she had her husband promise (laughs) that she, he wouldn't talk about it, mostly on social media, which is fine, whatever. But the unfortunate thing about that, and I disagreed with her, but I know her so well. And I, you know, I I don't doubt it. That's what she decided. That's, that was her. She was, she had a lot of pride. I'm sure she felt a lot of failure because she was a bright woman so, you know, she got this, a failure, and some people feel that, so I'm sure she did. She was very self-conscious because she lost her speech pretty quickly on, so she couldn't articulate. But what it did, because she didn't tell people, some of her friends, at the end of her life, when they saw her, they were in shock, and they felt cheated. And I know you could say, well, too bad, but... The thing is, a relationship is two ways, right? So I saw some of her friends feel really hurt. They were really hurt that they couldn't be part of her end of life, part of her. Couldn't support her. Yeah. You can't really support somebody when you don't know what's going on. And, you know, I did that with my folks. I think there's a really fine line between dignity and authenticity. Yeah, that's a good and, point. 
And so with my folks, I didn't know that I was hiding. Um, everyone knew my dad had brain cancer, but my mom's dementia, you know, we kind of kept to ourselves and she, she was very social and stuff. But then even as my dad's um, cancer progressed, I would go over and I would make sure that they, you know, both were all groomed. Dad had money to pay for whatever they were doing and someone was picking them up. And it didn't hit me until they came home and said, we're going to go to Texas, you know, this winter. And I'm like, no, you're not. That's not going to happen. I mean, that's what I'm thinking in my head. And I'm like, I was so mad at their friends. I mean, I was livid at their friends. How could they dare set my parents up for this? They could not maneuver going through an airport or traveling. They just couldn't together. My dad was, you know, in a weakened state. But what I realized was I was primping them all up and they were going out and socializing and they were reminiscing. So nothing seemed any different at all. And that's when I realized, hey, I'm at fault here because I haven't been honest with what's going on. And um, it became really apparent one day And for the most part, my dad didn't have um, memory issues, but uh, they had a friend that passed away. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, another friend called and said, hey, we'll pick you up and and bring you to the wake. Well, they pick up my folks. They got dressed on their own. My dad's not fully shaven. My dad just, he puts on a suit, forgets the shirt and has like his underwear shirt underneath his suit coat. And their friends didn't know what to say. So they took them out looking like that. And so somebody at the wake said to my dad, and my dad told me all this when they got home. And, and, I, and I just felt so bad, but my dad had a great sense of humor. And he just like, trying out a new style. You know, <laughs> that was just my dad. And, but I thought, oh my gosh, no, but, but they weren't prepared on how to handle that either. Where they could have helped okay. him. you know, find a shirt. So, but it was a big lesson for all of us. Well, then it goes right back to the fact that if we admit to this, if we talk about this more, then other people are, can be educated about how to respond to. Yeah. Because I I get it. I think that's why some people don't want to talk about it because it, it potentially makes other people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. which is true because we don't necessarily know how to respond to that. A couple of situations I remember with Catherine, one, I was, uh, this was pretty early on, but we were in a sewing store, a Joanne fabric or whatever. And she had this, her cute raincoat that she wore all the time. And this woman stranger came up to her and said, I love your raincoat. Where did you get it? And Catherine just stood there and stared at her. And she, she kind of did the, the, the giggling, the ha 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 ha, you know, cause she, she, I don't know if it registered what the person was asking her, but she couldn't respond again. Luckily I was right nearby. So I could come up and put my arm around her. I looked at her and I said, I can't remember where you got this. I don't think we remember, but it sure is cute. Isn't it? You know, whatever. But there was another time where one of her colleagues that worked with her over her career, as a teacher, so they knew each other well. We were in a public restroom 
I think we were at one, a rest, yeah, a restaurant. And uh, Catherine was done and I was now in the stall. And this person came in and I, I heard this person come up to her and say, oh, hey, Catherine, how you doing? Blah, 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 blah. And Catherine did the nervous, <laughs> and the, the woman kind of just stopped and I could hear it from the, the stall. And I just kind of in a singing voice said, she has dementia. <laughs> and at the funeral, this woman came up to me and said, I was so grateful that you did that because I didn't know what to do. Yeah, I didn't know what was wrong. Did it just happen or, you know, what's the deal? But we do have to have these conversations. They're so important. And, you know, you, you brought up a really good point about people not, not being able to give to that person, not being able to support that person when they don't know. And uh, I think it's critical that we all realize how good it feels to help somebody, yes. you know, to be able to give of ourselves. We all know when we volunteer, we get more back than what we give. Same thing when you're caregiving, but we put up the wall and sometimes we don't even know that. I know I did. And my, my brothers pointed that out to me, not till my dad died, which was, you know, a long way into our journey. But, uh, you know, they said, well, you know, you're kind of a control freak. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm just organized. What do you mean? <laughs> you know, I mean, we have this very different perception of what was going on. And yeah. yet I knew they didn't want to feel the emotions of dealing with the disease. And yet I was madder than a wet hen at them for not stepping up and stepping in. And yet I had this, I blocked them in some ways because they knew whatever they did wasn't in their mind going to be good enough for me. And so why bother? why am I going to try this and then get scolded by my sister type thing? And I'm like, well, I, w I wouldn't have done that. They're like, yeah, right. <laughs> you know. And so I had to look within um, and I took some responsibility, but I told them I'm not taking it all because you could have had this conversation with me ages ago, but you chose not to. And what was interesting, even after we had that, even after my dad passed, they still didn't step up and step in with my mom. But I learned the lesson to let go of that, that I can't control that. And that was huge. Yeah, see, that gets me to my SANE um, mm -hmm. acronym that I developed to help caregivers take care of themselves. Feeling supported, appreciated, not guilty, and energized. And you just absolutely said what one of them is about. So supported, being, you know, asking for help. Mm -hmm. appreciate it appreciating what you're doing but letting go that you know you don't have to do everything right yep. and and that exactly what you said it's it's not going to all be done the way you want it to be done and I think that's so key because I don't I bet you you get this question a lot but caregivers will say to me how can you help me get my siblings to step oh, up yeah. number one question yep how can you get them to stop or how can you get them to start, you know, or, or do something different? But right. But and I think part of it, you articulated so beautifully because it's we have to ask ourselves, am I a control freak? Yeah. Do I want them to care um, for my mom exactly like I would? You know, here's how you do it. This is how you do it. You don't do it that way. You do it this way. Yeah. And if our siblings see that and say, I'm not getting in that. Yep. No. 
so there's that level of honesty. I, I, I like what you said that I took, you took some of the responsibility, but not all of it. Yeah. Yeah. But so that's appreciate. And then uh, supported, appreciated, not guilty is knowing when you're doing enough that you don't, we don't have to keep doing more. In fact, more isn't always better. And that goes back to your story about your mom and daughter coloring. Mm -hmm. That's enough to color with your uh, loved one or to sit and hold their hand on the couch. And I don't know about you, but these COVID days especially have taught me that I actually like spending time alone. Oh, yeah. And I like sometimes simply sitting. Mm -hmm. I don't have to have the music on. I don't have to be watching anything. Sometimes I just like sitting. So I know I would not always want someone to force me to do something. And I think we get into that routine when we're giving care that we have to keep our loved one busy all the time and doing things so that they don't look sad. Because yeah. <laughs> I might, when I'm sitting on the couch, just hanging out, I might look sad when I'm just really just sitting. Mm -hmm. So that, that not feeling guilty about just not having to do, 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 but to just be. But it, when we're supported, appreciated, not guilty, then we have energy to re-engage and maybe try something new. And you know, this is so similar to what, what I've struggled with with depression over the years. Because when I'm in a depressive spot, I'm feeling pretty unsupported mm -hmm. because it feels like no one can understand. And don't you think that people with dementia feel like no one can understand? Yep. Um, and you're right, maybe we won't never understand, but you wanna get to the part where just being with someone is enough and, and helping them refine that energy level so that I know when I go through my cycle with depression, once I get that, feel that support, feel that appreciation from within, don't feel guilty that I'm watching my fifth Netflix, Netflix um, show in a series, then I have energy. Okay, I can go out. I can take a step Yeah. if you no, I, I get that. I um, You touched on so many things. You talked about um, forcing people to do stuff, being task-oriented. And I what I learned through my journey was I needed those things on my checklist to make me feel better, to make me feel like I was doing something for a disease that doesn't have a cure. And once I realized that even though these things were for my mom or for my dad or whoever I'm caring for, it, but it didn't really matter to them. And I didn't really have to do these things. Then I could just sit on the couch in silence or maybe hold their hand or whatever, listen to music, watch a show and, and take a breath and relax because they're relaxed. Be comfortable because they're comfortable instead of trying to change it. And it made me also realize how much we bring the problems in 
where yeah. they mirror back our anxiety, even though we have our separate wife smile on and we think everything is fine. They're still reading all the other nonverbals going on and yes. can pick that up. The other point was in talking about relationships and how to care and, you know, and I think I did have expectations of what the care should look like. Um, I didn't think that I was that controlling, but it doesn't make any difference what I thought. If that's the perception, then that's the truth. Right. That's their reality. And I have to just like with a person with dementia, step into their world. I had to step into other people's world of their perception of me. And so one of my jokes when I'm, when I'm talking about this story is the importance of diversity in our relationships and the importance of diversity and how we care and that no matter how special and kind and great I think I am at caregiving, nobody wants to be tied to me 24-7. I don't want to be tied to me 24-7. I, I want other pieces because that's what makes you know life go round. Validating each of our relationships in a, a special, unique way that's what makes our relationships our relationships and to try to take that away even though we might be we might not be conscious of it um, we have to step back and become conscious of it because there are so many subtle things that take over the other was trying to get others to be involved or be like them or step up you know, and we all know this, you can't change somebody who doesn't want to change. And, and yet, because the stakes are so high, when you're caring for a loved one, you think, oh, forget that I can, I can, I can do this. I can make them do this. I can get them to see the light, you know, glory be. And, and it's like, it doesn't work like that. And so there comes a point where you do have to step back and go, they have choices in their life, just like I have choices in mine. And it, every one of us has our own lessons to learn. Yeah. And when I, when I really accepted that fact, I think was when I, I had kind of a, a revelation. Um, some people could say it was a psychotic episode, but <laughs> it was just a, in, an epiphany where um, I was, I was really tired and I was exhausted and I looked in the mirror and I couldn't even see myself. I mean, I was just this faded face and it, it was all about, um, was I a caregiver or was I an, an enabler? And what I learned was that I was enabling others not to have to care yeah. because I was stepping up so much. Yeah. And, you know, that lesson actually got brought back to me when my mom was dying and she was coming to me in dreams and said, you know, you're not going to be here when I die. And I was all offended, but I, I'm always that person. What do you mean? You know, I have to be there. And she said, yeah. no, she said they need to learn about death and they can't do that with you in the room. So you are going to be gone. And I need to know you're going to continue speaking and doing the work that we've done together so when she was actively dying, I left and I did two, two different keynotes down in Arizona. And yet I could still participate through yeah. video and I could guide them, but they could physically do the tasks. And it was, I mean, it was amazing how, and I believe how she structured all of that. And yet I had all the support I needed where I was too with the people from the people on the plane to, you know, the audience, the whole nine yards, but it was, you know, so many lessons. Wrapped. But you had that support because you asked for it, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. 
because you told your story. Yeah, it was it was all through telling the story. Um, and I shouldn't say that um, that I asked for the help. Uh, I, I believe my mom lined it up. I mean, from the guy sitting next to me on the plane to the woman next to me at baggage claim. I mean, the stories are incredible. And, you know, even people who said, I want to meet you when I come, you know, four months ahead of time, we didn't know my mom was dying then, but they just appeared and they were the perfect people for me to be with during that time. I mean, one of them actually was with me when we watched my mom take her last breath. I, I mean, it was, it, it was incredible, but I, but I do think you get there through being authentic and through telling your story. Yeah. You know, people will align with yeah. you. And being present. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you didn't fight those things and you, you did let go of control. Yeah. But most of my family thought I was having a nervous breakdown, except my daughter <laughs> understood because she was so close and she, yeah. she knew, and I'm like, this is what grandma wants. And everyone else was, I think they were, they wanted to go that she's having a nervous breakdown because how could she leave us deal with this alone? Because she's always the backbone. Uh, so I think it was really more, not so scared for me, but scared for them individually, yeah. even though they may not have looked at that or will ever look at it like that. I think that's really the true story yeah. of, of the scare. It was just one of those things my mom was always big on um, death and dying and people need to be around when there's a birth and, and when we exit and need to understand and um, talk about shame. She would get scolded when we were little, bringing us to wakes and stuff and her friends. Oh, would, oh sure. no, yeah. that was so oh, taboo. Sure. But there's so many taboo things. Um, yeah. You know, another thing was shame. And I don't know if you've seen this or not, but um, many people with dementia who come out and speak get bullied. And they are told that they can't have this and that they're a scammer. And, you know, that my husband doesn't act like this or my wife or my friend, or, you know, they've progressed and you haven't. And it's this attacking. And then people um, with uh, dementia want to pull out. But it's amazing because they have spoken out and they are, you know, kind of front and center their tribe just gathers around them and says, no, you are of value and we understand and we appreciate you. And, but you know, that goes back to that whole thing where, what I was saying in the beginning that we get this or, or diagnosis that you've got this disease that causes dementia, bam, you're out. Yep. No. (laughs) Um, So you, we can still, they can still speak. They can still hold, a lecture, they can still do writing or be on a support group. Um, it doesn't take that away, but because so many of us don't understand, and if we're caring for someone who is in a different stage and we see them, we think, yeah, no. And it's not just with dementia, really, it's with any disease. The doctors and the researchers and the conferences should all be having people with a diagnosis speak. Uh, I mean, they're the truth. They're not like interpretation of what might be. They're living it. And and they can tell you what it feels like to, you know, walk into a home you've lived in 30 years and not know that it's your home or look at a door and not know that they can walk through it or 
be told to go get a, a jacket, you know, out of the closet, and they have no idea where that is. With my sister with Huntington's disease, my brother asked her something like, are you, do you have pain? And she says, oh, yes, all the time. She says, it's very painful because with the Huntington's, you've got the Korea piece, you're moving all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, wow, yeah, you're in pain? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, again, so learn that from someone with the disease, what you're saying. So, so important. What are some things that you've seen in terms of shame hampering someone giving care? I was just going to say it's similar to someone taking care of a baby, but we don't shame people giving babysitting a, a baby, right? Or a kid. But we do in that um, I've been, when I, again, I, my most recent situation being with Catherine, and I remember people saying, well, you know, she can't do that. Um, so if I was told that, well, you can't talk like her, you can't talk like that to her, she won't understand you. Now I'm going to go inside myself and think, oh, great. Oh, I did that last time. So was that a bad thing? Should I not do that? Because we all have our opinions on how to relate, how best to relate to this person. And if you, like what you were saying, if we can make room for some diversity um, and say, you know what? She best responds to this. I have no idea how she would respond to that. Yeah. Or, or how she would respond to you doing that. You right. know, uh, one example I can think of is um, with my mom, as she progressed in time, she would start saying, see you later, you know, after a while, crocodile. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. somebody came up to me one time and just shamed me. And uh, that is ridiculous. You shouldn't be talking to her like that. And I got angry and I'm like, don't you dare judge us. You don't know. Yeah, that would be inappropriate for you. But this right. is ingrained with how she was cared for as a youngster and how she cared for her child, me. Yeah, and there's meaning and feeling behind this. And she is joyful. This is right. not disrespectful. Right. You know, and yet we have this blanket right or wrong approach. And yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that we really have to understand and embrace that it's going to be different for every person, each environment, and it might work one time and it might not work. Another. Might not work the next time. There, there was this one really inappropriate video, Gilda Radner video that I watched with my best friend and totally inappropriate. <laughs> but to watch Catherine laugh worth it. Yep. Worth it. Yep. Yep. Well, and that's another good point is a lot of times we give up humor for being right or wrong or proper. Yeah. And yet humor is one of the most attractive things in any relationship <laughs> that people really appreciate. Yeah. And, and yet we, we like, okay, we can't do that anymore. This isn't funny. This is serious. Right. right. Oh my goodness sakes. We, you know, whoopee cushions. Mm -hmm. Oh, we would use those with uh, Catherine and we would laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and she would laugh. I mean, don't, don't you think it's about taking your cue from how that person is doing? Oh, exactly. Right. 
it's not it it's not about us it's it's about them and when we do that i think we find a lot more joy in mm-hmm. our own life and we you know we can be silly uh, we can be much more relaxed when you don't take it so seriously. I mean, you, you know, you'd brought up, you know, watching a child. If we watched a child and we were on pins and needles all day, how exhausting would that be? Totally. And how, and how uncomfortable for the person you're watching. I don't care if they're a child or an adult or if they've got a disease or not. Yeah. Um, that is body language you can't take back. No, you can't. I don't think people understand how much of our communication is through body language and of it. Yes. Yeah. And, (laughs) and that we can, um, you know, we can give the gift of comfort, but we have to be comfortable first. You know, it reminds me of another story. uh, And this was with my sister and she and I had a have had a strained relationship anyway, and then add Huntington's into it and Huntington's, you've got that three prong, you've got the Korea, the um, cognitive and the emotional and her emotional and cognitive are way ahead of the Korea, they have been the movement piece. Um, But I remember one time I took her out and then we went back to her room and she really had a room. This was when she, but now she's in a nursing home. So she had has just a room she sat in her chair and I lay on her bed and we watched the twins baseball game right and I was looking through cards that she got and she asked me if I would uh, sort her necklaces out to make them straight yeah we just sat there and she said to me several times this is so nice was normal yeah it's going with the flow it's not it's not being structured and having to follow some routine or some, um, some task list, some, you know, nobody wants to be a task, No, you know, and we don't, I think a lot of times even realize that we're making people feel that way. One of my um, favorite quotes is by Harry Urban living with dementia. And I think it's just brilliant advice, (laughs) you know, because we all try to get into our routines and stuff of how everything's supposed to go. And dementia doesn't always work that way. And he just started laughing. He's like, yeah, routines are great. He says, but they have to be our routine, not yours, because we can't adapt to change. And, you know, you think of how, how much time we exert in energy we put <laughs> into making them do it our way when we could really easily do it another way and, and have a good day. But instead, we've made everybody miserable by, you know, it's like trying to squeeze a square peg into a round hole. And you have to, I think, sometimes sit back and laugh at yourself and go, well, how dumb was that? I mean, how did I not see that, feel that, understand that at that point? And yet let the guilt go and just say, I've got another moment I can do better. That's right. That's right. Just another lesson learned. And that's all life is, is just another lesson learned. It is. Any, um, any last tips you have for people to kind of climb out of the the shame and move forward for either a person with dementia, a family member, or a professional as well? I really think finding a trusted friend or support group that you can let go of some of this too, because then once you share that with someone else who understands or someone else who is willing to not judge you, you let, it gets out of your head, get it out of your head. Because 
most of us sit and spin in our head, right? Yeah. But once it's out, at least um, it's not taking up as much space in our head. Well, yeah, that inner critic can do a lot of damage when we let it just, you know, I've learned to say, okay, I've heard you once. Bye. I got this now. For a long time, I would just let it loop and loop and loop. And then you just spiral down and think, oh my gosh, I'm such a slug. What's going on? <laughs> you know, I'm so imperfect. I should know better. And uh, I mean, it, it just, the inner critic sometimes just won't stop. And we have to realize that we can make it stop. We can shut the door on it. It just takes practice. And that's the other thing, to be gentle with ourselves. I always tell caregivers to put yourself on the gentle cycle. You're doing the best you can. Oh, I like that. Put yourself on the gentle cycle. Well, and it's funny because we often are much more gentle with someone else and we are horrible with ourselves. We are undeserving of (laughs) kindness, you know, (laughs) and and we don't really even know we're doing it until we talk about it like this. And then everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's me. Well, Kari, thank you so much. This was just a really fun, brilliant conversation. People can go to Kari's website by going to unexpectedcaregiver.com. She is on Facebook. She's on YouTube. She is on Twitter. She's on Instagram. And so very easy to find. We've got all those links for you. And you can purchase her book by going to her site, and or to Amazon as well. Well, thank you so much. This has really, really been good. And I hope our audience likes, clicks, and shares this. I think there's just a lot of valuable information in the conversation today. Always good to be with you, Lori. Thank you. In wrapping up, again, I just want to thank our audience so much. I really appreciate and value each and every one of you. Uh, If you need to reach out to me, you can email me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com or go to our main website where you'll find lots of other information as well at alzheimerspeaks.com. See you soon. Bye-bye.